What should be done to help those in a free society who are unable to afford the health care they need? No one wants their neighbor dying on the street because they lost everything paying for needed treatments, while at the same time, government programs have shown themselves to be inefficient in providing for those truly in need. I'm Dwayne Lester, and in this episode of Insight to Action, I talk with Dean Clancy, Senior Policy Fellow on Healthcare Policy at Americans for Prosperity, about safety nets. Here we go. Dean, this is our our sixth and final podcast focusing on the personal option. I got to admit, starting to tear up a little. I'm going to miss these (laughs) conversations. The sixth and final bullet point. We believe that all Americans deserve safety nets that protect the vulnerable. Safety nets are going to trigger some people. Uh, Both left, right, center, they're going to hear this. They're all going to interpret this in different ways and what that means. So help me and everyone listening understand what we mean when we say safety nets that protect the vulnerable. Well, absolutely. I mean, the personal option is about ensuring that everyone can get better care at lower cost, and that means everyone. I mean, we're all equal. Uh, we have equal rights, if you will, and um, and when it comes to illness, you know, it, it shouldn't matter whether you're rich or poor. You should be able to get health care. That's not the same as saying health care is a right that government has to provide you uh, sort of by coercion and force. But what it does mean is uh, people have a right to pursue the health care they need. There should be no barriers in the way, you know, between them and their doctor. But we know from a human experience that sometimes uh, things happen, unfortunate things, you know, disease, disability, catastrophe, and people don't have a, an ability to pay. So what do you do for those folks? Do you uh, simply provide charity? Do you provide welfare through the mechanism of government? And how do you make sure that uh, nobody dies on the sidewalk? I think this principle that we're talking about, safety nets, really starts from the idea that we as a society are committed to not letting anybody die on the sidewalk. And we don't, by the way. Um, Even with all our problems, uh, we have laws in place and government safety net programs in place and private charitable institutions and uh, private forms of people helping each other that all basically guarantee that nobody dies on the sidewalk. And that's a good thing. And a lot of our debates are really just about how best to protect people, not whether to do so. But the personal option, just to wrap up on this point, Duane, is it's about ensuring that you don't die on the sidewalk, and that means that um, we do think there has to be a safety net for you, and we do think that there's going to be a role for government. Now, there's a, it's a separate question, what government, you know, which level of government, and and uh, how exactly you organize the safety net, who, who you provide it to, you know, how generous you are with it. Those are separate questions. But just should we have such safety nets? We think the answer is yes. Let's, let's break in more into that. And I want to I take some time and really think about the fact that 
Another part of our vision is the fact that we see four key institutions. We don't just see government as the only institution out there that has the solution to everything. We see government, we see community, we see business, we see education. And one question that I'm often asking people is, what if government didn't do that? Because there is a a mental model. Uh, I, I refer to it as an internal barrier. I have some people who will dispute whether it's an internal barrier or not, but I think an internal barrier is anything specific to the individual that keeps them from taking action. And if you have this belief that if government doesn't do it, then it won't get done, then that's an internal barrier that's demotivating, that will keep you from taking action because you think, well, this is government's role. So I often ask, well, what if government doesn't do this? What if government doesn't do safety nets? How do the other key institutions respond to that? So is there, is there any history? Is there any evidence that if government didn't provide the safety nets that the other key institutions would step up? Well, that's a brilliant question. And you're right. Historically, there was a time before government welfare programs. The private sector took care of that stuff. If you go far enough back in time, I don't think it occurred to people that government uh, should do it. Although, I mean, you can go all the way back to the Roman Empire and they had, you know, free bread, you know, a welfare program like free bread for people and so on, which became politically very important, you know, keeping the populace uh, content. But, um, you know, in the Middle Ages, uh, the church in Europe did a lot of this. You know, they created the hospital, for example. They, they, uh, they provided food for the poor, you know, Christian almsgiving and so on. And then in, in America, in the 18th and 19th centuries, you had mutual aid where people would get together and help each other. And it would look a little bit like insurance, but it was private and it was mutual. And it, you kind of knew who you were helping. You were all united by a common interest. You know, you might be immigrants uh, from Ireland helping each other in a community. And uh, that's where organizations like the Knights of Columbus and many other uh, mutual aid societies uh, came into being. And then in the 20th century, there was kind of a turn in which government began taking on more and more welfare functions. And so that mutual aid tradition kind of atrophied. I mean, you still see it like there's something called healthcare sharing where people get together and they will basically pay each other's medical bills. That, that goes on right now in this country. It's kind of a growing movement. Uh, that's a return to mutual aid, something we've forgotten about. Uh, but And it's nice to see it coming back. But, but in general, government has taken the, the leading role in safety nets. I would say that probably has happened for more reasons than just that government wants to be in new lines of business. I think it's happened because of the evolution of society, industri the Industrial Revolution, and people moving off of farms into big cities, and people depending on wage labor and factory work. I mean, we've, we've moved beyond that now, so we're all sort of cyber workers or whatever, but somehow voters have wanted to make sure that you had the safety nets, and they've wanted government to do it. I do think it's worthwhile reassessing whether government should take the lead, and how generous the safety nets uh, should be. One thing that I've talked about is, well, everyone knows I like to read. There's a great book on this from mutual aid to the welfare state. don't know if you've ever read it, but it is a fantastic history of how we went from those mutual aid societies 
to the welfare state that we have today. Uh, it's by David uh, Beto, I believe is how you say his last name. But he's from it's from University of North Carolina Press. Great history uh, of the mutual aid societies, and we saw that they worked. They were, and it was right like you said, it was an atrophying as government grew more and more into this this area. Those organizations, they, people didn't go to them as much because they didn't need to. They could go to, to government. And when we talk about social safety nets, I think about Hayek, uh, wearing my Hayek t-shirt today. And he was an advocate of <laughs> government-funded safety nets. But when he talked about it, and, and how we've talked about it in Stand Together, is it should be a very small slice of a large arena of safety nets and that government shouldn't be the only source of a safety net out there that it should be in competition with other safety nets that's going to require a vast scaling back and there's there's going to be some pain there and there's going to be some time to grow as those safety nets come back online as you know it, there's there's pain in that physical therapy, when you when you have a leg in a cast and it, it atrophies for a while, there's some pain coming back. Eventually, it will grow. But that's what that's what we're looking at doing is is having a vast array of safety nets, not only a government monopoly on safety nets. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. You don't have to insist the government be the only or the main provider of safety nets, and. Um, and I'm not even sure I'd use the word pain in terms of a transition to a more traditional scaled-back role for government. I was involved in the welfare reform bill in 1996. I was a, a Hill staffer in Washington, and I actually uh, helped shepherd the bill through the House at the, you know, as a staffer behind the scenes uh, for the leadership. And um, I'm very proud of that bill because what it did was is it, it took a government program that was called AFDC, a New Deal program that just gave people cash welfare, very poorly designed program that basically trapped people in poverty. It, it created a permanent underclass in this country which had all these pathologies, you know, kids living in fatherless homes, uh, crime, people uh, handing down you know, the welfare mentality from generation to generation. It was a disaster. It needed to be reformed. And the public finally said, fix this. And we did. And what did we do? We took uh, a fixed amount of federal money in place of the entitlement that had existed. We said to the states, help your poorest citizens with this money. That's all you get. But we're going to take all this federal strings and rules and red tape off it. You can spend it how you think is best for your people. Well, guess what? It worked. Poverty actually went down. Child poverty went down. The number of people on welfare fell by 50%. People were basically finding that it now made sense for them to go to work. Welfare would just be a safety net rather than a, a hammock or a way of life. That's a good model for reforming healthcare safety nets. I'm thinking, for example, of the Medicaid program, which is the big joint federal-state program uh, that tries to help low-income and disabled elderly people with their healthcare costs. That program is designed very much like that old AFDC program from the New Deal. And guess what? It has many of the same problems. It's bloated, full of waste, full of fraud and error, and it provides very subpar health care. Medicaid is really the worst health insurance 
program in the country. You, you only want to go on Medicaid if you have no other choice because it's just not good health care. It sounds like what you're saying is that these reforms could be a way of getting safety net dollars spent more efficiently than they are right now. That's right. Okay. Well, in other words, uh, Medicaid, for example, since we're on that, it, uh, it wasted $143 billion in 2019 and 2020. By the way, the, the research on that, uh, some of it has been done by our sister organization, Americans for Prosperity Foundation, and they have been pursuing information on this because that number is so big it makes Medicaid the most wasteful federal government program. And if I could just take a second to put that number in perspective, $143 billion in waste, you could cover half the uninsured in the country with that amount. You could cover 24 million adults with Medicaid or 7.2 million disabled people with Medicaid for that amount of money. And final thing, that, that amount of money is it's equal to every penny we spend on Medicaid in the states of Texas, Florida, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Illinois combined. It's massive waste. And so the program clearly has to be reformed. And by the way, the, the feds have been you know, making it hard for the states to fix the problem, and the states have incentives not to want to fix the problem. So we need Medicaid reform. Um, but that's just, that's that's sort of the biggest example out there, but there are many others of why we do need to make this more efficient. And there's a moral reason for it. You're trying to help the low income and vulnerable, then you should help the low income and vulnerable, not just anybody. Like Medicaid has a huge problem of people signing up who are not eligible to be on the program. And current rules actually make it well not impossible for the states to take those people off the rolls. And so, um, we're wasting money in a way that just defeats the purpose of the program. So efficiency means focusing on the truly needy and, and not wasting uh, any of the money and not letting it get stolen. We've talked a lot about what the federal government's doing and what the state governments are doing. Do we see these safety nets as being a federal issue or a state issue? Where should, where should this be handled? My own personal view, and I think it sort of dovetails with the general thinking of, of our organization is that the lower the level of government providing the safety net, the better. In other words, welfare is essentially a, a local function. So it's better if local communities do it. Assuming the private sector can't cover it, let it be towns and counties. I seem to remember a book coming out not that long ago that said those closest to the problem are best suited to solve it. I think that was Believe in (laughs) People by Brian Hooks and Charles Koch, wasn't it? Exactly. So there you have it. You've you've cited the most authoritative source uh, for this organization. And um, that's right. So make it local. And therefore, states really should have the lead uh, as between the states and the feds. In fact, personally, I'm not sure I see a role for the federal government in welfare at all. Maybe I'm mistaken about that. I certainly don't think you need federal health care programs, but uh, I am realistic enough to realize that we've, we've got these big programs on which tens of millions of Americans rely, and you're never going to see Congress simply eliminate them. So the best we can do under current conditions 
is make sure those programs are efficient, that they are not, we're not just wasting money on people. But to the extent we can shift resources and, and flexibility down to the states and localities, that's what we should do. What about how do we how do we target this uh, these programs? Should this be something like, well, some advocate for a universal program that actually abolishes uh, all health care. I would be shocked if that was what we were advocating. I mean, like literally, I could need health care <laughs> myself right now. I don't think that's what we're advocating. So is is it targeted or is it more this is open to anybody? Well, you're referring to the idea of Medicare for all. Medicare, of course, is the federal uh, health care program for the elderly and disabled, and it's not means-tested. So it, you, whether you, Bill Gates and Warren Buffett get Medicare, even though they have absolutely no financial need for that help. It's a universal entitlement, but it's limited by age. You're 65 and older. That's, that's who can be on Medicare, unless you are uh, disabled, then you can be under 65, but that's a small population that's on Medicare that's under 65, and that's it. So the rest of us are not on that program, but folks uh, in the Democratic Party, especially liberals, progressives, they really want to just make that universal. Get rid of private health insurance, as you were mentioning, and just have one big health insurance program run by the feds, Medicare for all. And um, we would say not just no, but heck no to that idea for reasons we've discussed in previous podcasts. I mean, it's just, it ensures that we have lower quality, um, higher costs, people standing in line for health care when it doesn't need to be that way. It would just be a disaster. It would be like Medicaid for all. I've mentioned how inferior the Medicaid uh, insurance product is. That would be universal now. And, um, and people wouldn't stand for it. And it turns out, and our polling shows this, the public is not looking for that. They're, they're not looking for a gigantic one-size-fits-all government uh, program. Uh, no, instead what they're looking for and what we're for is let's fix the problems that exist in our system. Let's fix what's broken. Let's keep what works because a lot of our system works really well. We've got some of the best doctors, the best hospitals, the best technology in the world. You know, let's not kill the goose that lays the golden egg. Let's, uh, let's just, you know, make it better. And that's what the public wants, that's what we want, and that's really what the personal option is. It's a series of common sense incremental reforms to make health care better for everybody. Thanks again to Dean Clancy for taking the time to talk with us about safety nets and for taking the time to explain a personal option in six different episodes of Insight to Action. If you have any questions about a personal option or the health care priority initiative, please feel free to send me an email at i2a at afphq.org. I'm Dwayne Lester, and this has been Insight to Action.